You're listening to The LaunchCast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the LaunchCast. Episode 113 entitled, Sometimes Your Words Just Hypnotize Me. Ooh, love this theme music. It's the launch dad himself, George Andriopoulos, bringing you your favorite podcast on the planet. I ain't lying, guys. And your favorite theme song on the planet. We're talking leadership, business, life, and growth. And we're talking about it all with an incredible guest today. I can't wait to introduce this man. Oof. End of theme music. <laughs> this is pretty cool for me. And I'm going to tell the story a little bit later about how this guest and I uh, met. But first, I'm going to do the bio and then introduce him on here. We have Mr. Scott Schmarin on the show today, neuroperformanceologist. Scott Schmarin is an internationally known hypnotist, speaker, coach, and author. He co-wrote the book Stepping Stones to Success along with Jack Canfield, Deepak Chopra, and Dr. Dennis Waitley. He's also the creator of the Quadratic Formula for Success, which is the life transformation program he created to literally transform every area of his life, including helping him lose and keep off more than 180 pounds. Scott has appeared on Oprah, and Oprah said, if Scott can do it, I can do it, and so can you. Scott is a regular guest on the Howard Stern Show, my favorite, we all know that, and Daily Mail. He also appeared on Fox News, Coast to Coast Radio, uh, and has been featured in Reader's Digest and the New York Times. I mean, the list goes on and on. Scott's process of transformation is being used to help cancer patients, children, and adults from all walks of and areas of life. Scott is committed to his life to helping others overcome the obstacles and challenges in their lives and to help them help create and live the life of their dreams. Wow, man. Thank, thank you so much for being here, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's so cool how, how you and I met, and I, I'm going to get into that story a little bit later on, but I want to jump in today because we have we have so much to to cover. Scott, guys, is a is somebody who's world renowned for what he does, and I was aware of of Scott and his uh, incredible career years before he and I met because of the Howard Stern show. <laughs> but you know, we we look past the the comedy that they sort of put into to the bits that they do together. To realize that this man has a has a real gift in what he does, and he uses it to to really help people, which is, to me, something that's so incredible. So I'm going to start off the way we start with every single guest, Scott. I'm going to ask you, Scott, are you a leader? George, yeah, I think I'm a leader. I, I do things a little bit differently. I march to the beat of my own drummer, and I see the world through uh, a very different perspective and different eyes. Yeah, so, so talk about that a little bit more. What, what is your definition of a leader? I think a, a great leader is somebody 
who inspires people to be their best and allows them to shine and be how great they can be. Um, I think that a lot of people have an idea of a leader being someone who is sitting there with a whip, uh, whipping the people underneath them to get them to do what they're going to do. And I think a great leader just helps people shine and helps them be amazing. And when you create an environment like that as a great leader, you see people achieve incredible things. Yeah, and and what I sort of equate leadership to um, in terms of our process, and we'll get into your process and, and your journey to leadership as the show goes on, but there are, to me, when I look back at my life and, and the lives of all these leaders that I've spoken to on this show, there are these series of events, which I like to call your, your spark moments in life, that sort of help to guide that path, right? They, they sort of help to tell that story. They're these moments that were so important to you in your life, whether they were you know negative moments or positive moments, but they really help to shape the path of, of that journey that you take. And, and your story is just so incredible. And I wanna, I wanna uh, share the story with, with everybody and, and sort of how you got to that point. So you've made it no secret that you have struggled with, with, with weight issues for a lot of your life. Um, can you speak about that a little bit in a general way? We'll get into the very specific story, but in, in a general way, how that's sort of helped to shape who you are today. Well, it's funny because I, did, I spent most of my life through childhood and most of my adulthood, at least so far anyway, um, struggling with my weight. And I, you know, I've had a lot of negative experiences, and I guess we'll talk about those in a little bit. And you know, people ask me now, well, if you could go back now and change those things and not have experienced those things, would you erase them from your past? And the reality is, no, I wouldn't. The reality is, is I needed those things. Those are the things, those are the experiences, some of them really bad, that really helped shape and form me and got me ready for this journey that I've been on and the things that I've accomplished now. So they were a necessary path on the journey of my life. So would I erase them? No. And, um, I, you know, it, it was a necessary part of who I am and where I am today. You know, I, I find it so interesting taking these walks back with the leaders that I speak to on this show because, you know, a lot of times you, you've, you've been doing this for, how long have you been doing what you're doing now? Um, I want to say I've been doing this at least 20 years, George. It's been um, a long time, maybe even longer. I'm looking, I'm looking at the wall in front of me right now, and the first thing that I accomplished is I did a Silva program October 1st, 1995. So that's what, 25 years? Yeah. And sometimes we, we take these walks back and it's really kind of cool to look at not only what we've accomplished as individuals, but you know the, the amount of people that we've helped along the way. And then you hear certain things that trigger you back to that time when things were tougher. And I want to I want to really hear from you what these things um, trigger for you in terms of memory. So I got a lot of this from from uh, the information on your website and, and interviews that I've read and, and listened to about you. I'm going to say a few words to you, and I, I don't mean to trigger you in a negative way here, but um, I'm going to say a few words to you, and I want to hear from you. Where does this where do these words bring you back to? When I say the words tubby, fatso, jumbo, fat boy, piggy. Oh, that's easy. That goes back to my childhood. And in those, you know, 
less than endearing terms I heard not just from kids in my neighborhood. I used to get that from the adults too. You know, the adults in my neighborhood I grew up, I grew up on this uh, block long row of townhouses, mm -hmm. six families in each row of townhouses. And I don't know how many rows there were, but there were a lot of kids and a lot of adults and everybody knew each other. And, you know, we all had nicknames, but just my nicknames were less than positive, obviously. Um, you know, usually had something to do with your physical attributes, but I was called names by grown-ups too. They wouldn't think anything about it. I mean, I guess we live in a much different time now where it's much less acceptable than it was then, but, you know, I was very rarely called by my first name. Yeah, and, and it's incredible to think what kind of effect you know, behavior like that has had on us. We just had uh, episode 112, um, which just went live yesterday on, on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. I canceled guests last week because I really wanted to get on my soapbox and, and have a, a monologue on this program um, about behavior like that, specifically speaking about two children, uh, one that, that unfortunately passed away that was autistic and one that was that is severely being bullied in Australia. I'm sure you've seen uh, the viral it, videos. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that enrages me, man. It, it enrages me because I, I know what kind of effect that kind of behavior, uh, other people's behavior can have on somebody's life and the path that they take. You know, I, I spoke about my own life, you know, being bullied a little bit in, in a few different ways took me down a path in my 20s of becoming a bully, you know, and, and, and having to go through a lot of traumatic experiences to sort of realize that, hey, this isn't who I am. I need to I need to sort of change my way. But you, you lived this whole life as, as another person before you sort of like woke up one day and realized that you need to take control of the, uh, of the narrative in your own life. Um, so going back to what we spoke about with, with childhood, with that name calling, what was childhood like for you growing up in that kind of environment? Um, it was difficult for me. You know, I'm a, I'm a fairly introverted, quiet, empathic person to begin with. I've always been that way as a kid. And so those things hurt me. And my way of dealing with being hurt was not to show anybody, not anybody see that. So I internalized it. And the way I got relief from that is by eating and watching a lot of TV, a lot of bad TV shows from the late 60s and the early 70s, a lot of bad sitcoms. And those things allowed me to lose myself, to forget about all those things. But what happened was that they became a perpetual source of pain. Now, here I was, I'd be teased, I'd be hurt, I'd go home, I'd stuff my face, feel better because I was eating for whatever crazy reason there was for that to happen, watch TV, get lost, sit on the couch, do nothing, get bigger and fatter, go out into the world, be teased even more because it became more prominent in the problem, and then go back and eat more, and this non-ending cycle just kept getting worse and worse. So what happened was, is I began to withdraw from the world. I, you know, the other thing I struggled with from being teased and bullied all the time is also really not developing any social skills. So it was hard for me to interact. And I wasn't the type of person that was gonna lash out and try to beat up every person that was making fun of me my way of dealing with it was withdrawing from the world, which didn't help me. Yeah. It made everything worse. Sure. Now, you know, when we look back on our lives, especially I think men like you and I, 
are very introspective in terms of looking at our lives and sort of taking from those negative moments and really using them not only to help ourselves now, but to help other people. But during that time period, was it in your own mind, looking back now, knowing what you know now, was it all about the weight for you? Like, did your life revolve around weight back then? Or was that just sort of the environment you were in and, and you look back now and realize how important it was? Um, no, I think that's actually a great question. I think my life did revolve around my weight. You know, as miserable as I was, it still made me different. People noticed me. I was getting some attention. You know, I can remember, I remember in the 1980s being in my 20s and I used to travel on the road um, selling closeouts and seconds in upholstery fabrics. And I'd make the same rounds to these furniture manufacturers and these upholstery jobbers all over the country every 90 days. And I was the fat guy from Chicago. And so people knew me. And so it's almost like I wore like a moniker. Yes, I was miserable, but there was some, and for a lot of people, this is true also, there's a secondary benefit. As miserable as you are, you are getting some benefit from whatever you're struggling with, whether it's your weight or you have chronic pain or a chronic disease or something that makes you stick out, look different, or people perceive you as being different. There's a benefit to being noticed. Granted, it's not always positive. It's like a little kid that can't get any attention from his parents. So they do bad things just so they can get some attention. And it's really no different than that. So it kind of defined me. And um, actually, I let it define me is what I did. Yeah. Um, you know, you say now, again, being an introspective person and understanding what that journey meant, uh, every step of that journey as you went through it. But during the time, what did food represent to you? back then you know when I really think about it um, you know it, 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 you know you understand it you know especially for somebody who is morbidly obese food is just if you look at people that are morbidly obese and you watch them eat they eat things that taste good but they eat them as quickly as they can and get it as much of it into them as they can they don't really enjoy what they're eating and I could say that was true for me what it represented to me is it gave me something to fill the emptiness inside of me and like I would eat, not just to eat, I would eat till I was stuffed, sometimes physically sick, because I needed to fill this emptiness I was feeling inside of me, and this was a way of doing it physically. Obviously, that emptiness was emotional and spiritual, and so eating was a bad replacement for filling the emptiness inside of me. Besides food, was there an escape for you back then? Oh, oh listen, TV was... Uh, you know, TV and movies. I used to love, I used to live less than a, uh, a mile from a movie theater and to go to a movie, you know, and just get lost in the story. And yeah, I mean, movies and TV were my fantasy life. I would have fantasies about how I was going to come back and be this, you know, superhero and show everybody, um, you know, how much better I was in them. Or my, I remember one time, I remember the, I forgot the name of the movie, where it was based on a true story where he had the soccer team that was in a plane crash in the mountains in the Andes and they survived. Alive. You know, you know, and I would say to people, you know, well, yeah, this is a kid speaking. Hey, you know, I'm overweight. If we ever get in a plane crash like that, I'm going to outlive all of you. So that was my <laughs> uh, justification for being heavy sometimes. Your story is so interesting to me. You know, every time we, we have a new guest on here, I really dive into our, our show research because I want to make sure that we're really getting to the crux of leadership. The whole goal of this show, Scott, is to uh, to have our audience out there, leaders or not, listen to these journeys of our guests and to 
hear a story and relate to it and go, hey, you know, I went through that or I suffer from that right now. And look what he's done or look what she's done. You know, maybe, maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel for me in terms of um, maybe I can become a leader like this person, you know, and that that's what this is about. We want to make sure that we're speaking to to people out there that haven't necessarily found their leadership yet or whatever that word is. I use the word leadership to represent um uh, I, I guess a, a balance in life, a happiness in life, a, a joy, uh, and and somebody that can stand up in front of other people and and sort of lead. But whatever it is for a person, whether it's happiness or balance or joy, you know, listening to these journeys and 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 sort of relating them to their own stories, and then becoming actionable, right? Get, doing something to help better their situation. That's what we want out of this. And so for me doing my research and I, I knew a lot about you already, but doing further research and really reading your written words on, on the, the journey you went through, I can relate, man. I, I mean, I've, I've been there myself. Um, I didn't struggle so much as a kid with rate with weight. I struggled, uh, starting in my early twenties with weight and I fluctuated all the time. And I still, I'm right now going through a little bit of a tough period in, in weight fluctuation that's really bothering me because I've been really good for the last year or so. And uh, it, it affects you, man. It affects you so much. And the, the psyche of a person that is going through that is really, really delicate. What was that psyche like for you in, in terms of how it affected you, like in, in your core when you were a kid? Wow, that's a great question. How, you know, if I think back on how it affected me at my core, um, I really didn't think very highly of myself. You know, we have a tendency to become a product of the environment we grow up in. So most people look at somebody, whether it's a kid or adult, who is fat, and the first thing they think of is that they're lazy, they don't like to do anything, they're unmotivated, and they're undriven. And while I wasn't any of those things, you start to believe those things. And I felt worthless. I felt, why was I here? I had this desire to help other people, to do kind things, and all I was getting from everybody was that, hey, you're a freak, you're different. You know, I think a lot of people struggle with that, just with weight, whether it's the color of your skin, your sexual preference, how you look, how you dress. The moment seems like when people stand out and they're a little bit different, the, the first thing that happens is that people that are doing the bowling feel really insecure with you there about themselves. And they have to find a reason to knock you down a few notches lower than they are in their own minds. Yeah. And all, you know, also, George, you know, your word leadership is a great word. But I think people think of leadership only as leading other people. It's very difficult to lead other people until you can lead yourself. It's a great and it's point. important to realize that leadership is really about leading all the areas of your life and making conscious decisions to change the things you don't like strengthen the things you think are great about you and then develop new things and to move forward. So leadership starts with really leading yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Great, great point. So, so you struggled for years with this and it really took a toll on you, a heavy, heavy toll. Talk to me about what your personal life was like during this period as a, now I'm talking about as a young adult. As a young adult. Okay. So so I can remember specifically, I was I'm probably right around 20 years old. And I remember knowing somebody who had um, a New Year's Eve party and they invited me. And I was 
thrilled to be invited to that New Year's Eve party. Um, I didn't really socialize a lot. Um, and I remember going to this party. There was 50 people there. And they had a big spread of food out. And I remember making my plate of food. And, of course, I had a Diet Coke with that. And um, I remember I found this beautiful wood rocking chair to sit on in the middle of the year. And I was going to plop myself down in that chair and I was going uh, to be able to see everything in the whole room, watch everybody, and just eat. And that sounded really good to me. So I sit down in the chair, and as I sit in the chair, the chair broke. And when I say it broke, it didn't just break. It looked like it, out of a movie. The whole thing just crushed. I crushed it. It went everywhere. And little pieces of wood flying, and I'm this little short, fat guy laying on the floor. I got food all over the place. And in that moment, Everybody, in the, everything in that room just stopped. Everybody just turned around and looked, and almost simultaneously, everybody began to laugh. And truthfully, if you're watching that, it's got to be a pretty funny thing to say. But I never felt so small and so tiny and so horrible and ashamed in my whole life. And all I remember is I just wanted to shrink down to be about that big and just go hide somewhere, and I couldn't do that. So... I did what I always did. I put on the big stupid grin on my face and started laughing with everybody because I was dying on the inside. And then I left. I had to get out of there as soon as I could. And I remember I went back to my apartment that evening and I spent my New Year's Eve, which were with my two best friends at that time, a large sausage pizza from a place called Nick's. And I ordered from this place at least six days a week. So this is in the 80s. I had a tab with them, like in a bar. I would write them a check once a week. I would just say, hey, it's Scott, and they would send it over. So I spent that night, that New Year's Eve, alone with my two best friends, a large sausage pizza from a place called Nick's, and I used to get a frozen Sara Lee cheesecake, and I would eat it frozen, and I ate all of it. I was so horribly sick, and I remember being so angry and so frustrated. I hated myself. I hated the world. I hated everything. I just didn't care. I wanted to be left alone, and I felt miserable. Yeah. What about uh, what about personally in terms of uh, um, relationships, in terms of family? What was that like for you during that period? Um, during that time in my early twenties, I was still single. I didn't I, I didn't date that often, and I was also running cycles where. Yeah, I go through these two-year cycles. I drop 100 pounds, put it back on. Usually I put on more. Then get to a point where I was disgusted again, drop 100 pounds, and put it back on again. Um, so I did not do a lot of dating. Um, and when I would lose weight, it felt really odd. I felt, I felt like it wasn't me. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, and I'm going to speak about weight, but it's really true for any other vice that someone is struggling with, is they think that once they get rid of that vice, or once I would lose all the weight, my life would change and I would be happy. But the reality is the opposite happened because my weight, however crazy it was, was a way of me protecting and insulating myself from this world. And the moment I got rid of that, I had to see myself for what I really was. I had to really address the things that I didn't want to address. And I got news for you, that's scarier than hell. Yes, it is. You know, all of a sudden, you don't have to deal with anything. You have a built-in excuse for the world. I'm heavy. I can't do this. I can't go out. People don't like You have an excuse for not doing anything. And that's not really a legitimate excuse. It's only my perception and my perspectives of the world. 
So the moment I get rid of that, I have nothing. I have nothing to hide behind. Like I used to look in the mirror, and I would go from being really heavy to getting in really good shape, and I'd look in the mirror and go, who is that? That's not really me. Or I'd say to myself, this is, gonna, this is, this is not even real. I'm going to pinch myself and wake up. I'm going to be heavy again. And I felt really uncomfortable being that way um, because it really wasn't who I was at that time. Now that's a totally different story. So it was, it was difficult, you know, going through these cycles. And interacting with other people was very difficult. It was, um, I didn't like doing it. Being large groups of people, um, I don't know how I traveled on the road and called on strangers in different parts of the country, but I did it. And, but then I was a novelty at it. Or people would say to me, I remember traveling on the road after losing a lot of weight, and they'd say, oh, I'm so glad you lost weight. I was so worried about you. We thought you were going to die. I go, okay, why don't you say something then, you know, <laughs> but, you know, so, so what happens, I lost, truthfully, I lost my identity as being fat and being the fat guy. Yeah. So, um, that was very difficult. I spent a lot of, again, even in my 20s, a lot of time watching TV, a lot of time eating. Sure. They were my, they were my things of comfort. So it really speaks to a, a quote that you have on your website. You said, it still had not sunk into my head that my weight wasn't my real issue, it was only the symptom of my major problem, which was the poor self-image I had of myself and of not truly loving myself and who I am. I did not like or love myself. And then, you know, at some point, I don't know what the, the chronology of, of this all is, rock bottom, right? You were 5'6", 360 pounds? Yep. Is that right? Yep. Talk about what happened. I had just gained a ton of weight back. I think it was 140 pounds. I go, now what do I do? I have tried everything from things that make sense to crazy things to starving myself. And in that moment, I felt hopeless. And I'm sure many people listening to this have had moments in their life where they go, okay, now what do I do? Whether it's my weight, not, not being accepted in this world or our society, and just feeling hopeless. And in that moment of weakness, I said, you know what? I can't stand this anymore. I hate myself. I hate the world. What's the point? So in that moment of weakness, I lost my desire and my will to live. So I remember being in such pain that um, I took a bottle of sleeping pills and a bottle of painkillers. And I remember putting them in this little paper Dixie cup, and I went to my bathroom, and I, I put it on my bathroom counter, and I don't know how long I looked at that cup for. A long time. It was talking to me. And then I looked in the mirror, and when I looked in the mirror, I really didn't see anything. I saw nothing. I saw hopelessness. I saw a life wasted. I saw everything I was focused on was negative a rationalization and why I should take everything in that cup. And I took it. I, I took two, a bottle of sleeping pills and a bottle of painkillers, the entire bottle, and I took them all. And I remember in that moment when I took it, I felt two powerful emotions. I felt instant relief, like, okay, this is all going to be over, and I don't have to worry about anything anymore. But I also felt terrified at the same time. It's like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if I die? Where do I go? Am I going to hell for killing myself? Am I, you know... All, all these things just rushing through my head. And I remember sitting down, I had this chair. I used to watch TV in the chair. I used to 
eat in that chair. I, it's like I conducted my life in that chair. It was almost like it was my security blanket. Yeah. It was the one place I felt safe. And I remember at some point I just passed out. I, I just, it was gone. And I don't know what happened. I don't know why it happened. Well, now I know why it happened. It makes sense now. The pieces of it have a tendency to make sense after they already happened. We look at them in hindsight. And I remember the next morning, sometime in the morning, I opened my eyes. I was still in that chair. I didn't die. Nobody found me. I never went to a hospital. And I opened my eyes, and I saw the light, the light of the sun shining through my living room window. It was a very, very surreal moment, and it was so peaceful. I almost thought I was dead. That's the only way I can describe it. I thought I was dead and that everything was wonderful, and then I go, oh, my God, I'm alive. I'm alive. Holy cow. Why am I alive? And then it just, like, it just hit me. I go, I must be here for a reason. And in that moment, I had this huge emotional uproar. I remember I was just bawling my eyes out. I was mad at myself for what I had done, but I felt this, I want to say a change. I, in that moment, I accepted responsibility for myself. I stopped blaming everybody else and using the excuse that people didn't accept me for the way I was. I just, it's like the suit came off and I accepted responsibility for everything that happened in my life and where I was at that moment. And I said, I'm getting out of this freaking chair. I'm getting out of this chair and I want to know why. I want to know why there are two people inside of me. The one person that wants to lose weight, be happy and healthy, successful, and have a great life, and the other person in me that every time I move in that direction, it's like someone's tied a rope around me and they just pull me right back in. I wanted to know why. And it started on my quest. I started reading books, and everything I started reading about the mind talked about how the subconscious mind is really everything. It really determines who we are and what we are, not our conscious mind. And we always seem to be trying to make changes consciously. So as I started reading and everything was a subconscious mind, it didn't matter what you were studying, whether it was hypnosis or some other modality or meditation, everything centered on the subconscious mind. So I started studying and started learning. I started taking courses and I started experimenting on myself. And as I started to change the pictures in my head, my need to be heavy started to go away. You know, we have it so wrong in our world today, mostly in this country. Diet and exercise are the keys to losing weight. They're not. They are very, very important tools, but they are only tools. It's what you think about and how you see yourself up here that's the key. You know, if I give you a beautiful Stradivarius violin to play, do you know how to play it? Do you know what to do with it? No. And it's really the same thing. You have to learn how to use the tools that you have and make them work. And it, they were subtle changes. I mean, simple things like and once in a while I get up off the couch and go for a walk. Or, you know, I, you evolve and change. Like, so I was still eating crappy food, but now I wasn't eating as much crappy food. And it would start to evolve and change. You know, like, so, I, so the three I, the questions I get all the time for people now are, how did you do it? How long have you been this way? And how do you know you're not going to go back to where you were before? And so in the past, I could tell you the day I started a diet, the day it ended. Most of the time, they were on the same day. But even like the ones where I go for a long time, day started, day it ended. And like I said before, I always felt really weird in the mirror, like it really wasn't me when I had lost weight. Yeah. 
So now I like the way I look. I walk in front of the mirror. I like the way I look. Can I tell you the day that I started losing weight? No, I can't tell you. And instead of losing it in six months, I would lose. I could knock out 100 pounds in six months, no problem, or more. I got to imagine it took me a couple of years. It, 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 what happens is it became unimportant to me. And when that picture changed, it was just a process of my body catching up now with what my mind saw as the picture of myself of who I really was. Yeah. I have an interesting question for you. So I, I, when I read about that moment, that rock bottom moment, I had an interesting thought, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Uh, and I want, it, I want a concise answer, meaning give me one word or one quick sentence for this. That change that you talk about when you woke up, that, that change in, in consciousness, whatever you want to call it, what would you describe that change as? And what I mean by that is, do you think that something actually clicked during that period? Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this person later on, but I've made it no secret on the show that Howard Stern is one of my, my communications hero, <laughs> right? Um, in terms of, no, in terms of his interview style, because I really mm -hmm. model what I do around the, his style of interviewing because of the, the, the depth of research that he does and, and the psychological perspective of the questions. Um, he always talks about when he was younger and he took LSD, it broke something in his brain. That, that's mm -hmm. the, he always says that repetitively that he yeah. thinks he would be a different person. Talk to me about that moment very concisely. What do you think happened when you woke up? Um, it was an awakening. If I had to use one word, it was an awakening. Um, it, imagine living your life in a fog, a clouded view of how you see the world. And I opened my eyes and the fog was gone. And I was I was prepared to see myself for how I really was. Um, my imperfections um, and really who I was at that time. And also I would say the, a great word to describe that is I became honest with myself. The LaunchCast is sponsored today by the Leadership Experience, a coaching masterclass. Intentional, unconventional, thoughtful leadership from keynote speaker, CEO, nonprofit board member, and TEDx executive producer, George Andriopoulos. Hey, that's me. Guys, the music's getting louder, which either means that this is a can't-miss epic course or that Fabrizio fell asleep at the controls again. Registration opens on February 1st, and we are beginning on March 1st. This music is so damn loud, and that means it's going to be amazing. And Fabrizio's pay is definitely getting docked this week. Join us, the Leadership EXP, for details. You don't want to miss this. Tell me again, what were you doing professionally before all this? Um, my last career, my after my transfer, or before, actually during my transformation, is I, I was a residential real estate broker for probably close to 20 years. Oh, wow. Wow. So, um, so it's interesting how these, these moments in our lives, these spark moments and that for sure, that moment, uh, where you took the sleeping pills and, and sort of had your awakening. Um, that was a spark moment for you that changed the course of, of the rest of your life. What was the impetus now, now that you started to work on yourself in a completely different way, you didn't focus on the weight, you, you focused on the man himself. What was the impetus to start this professional journey that you've been on now for, for 20 years plus? 
Actually, if I had to think about it, uh, George, the journey actually started when I was a little kid. You know, I always had the idea in my head that I was here to help people and make a difference in this world. And as the early part of my life proceeded, that voice went away inside of me. And as I started to change, you know, obviously weight's a very obvious thing when you start to transform as people notice. And people started asking me what I was doing and can you help me? And then that little voice started to come back. And it said, you know, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. You need to be helping people make a difference in this world. And I go, yeah, 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 yeah. And I have these internal conversations with myself and I kind of shush it and keep going. And it would come back louder. And to the point where it was screaming at me, I go, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I walked away. I walked away from what I was doing. I said, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm not quite sure how I'm gonna do it yet. And what the vehicles and the avenues I will use, but I have faith and I'll just move forward. So here I am. So that, that's pretty much, it's pretty simple. Yeah, so what what was it that you first chose? Because uh, you know when I read your when I read your bio and I see uh, neuroperformanceologist, I see hypnotist, I see speaker, I see author. Um, what came first? What part of this uh, came first in, in, in that journey? Um, at first, I just wanted to work with people one on one, and I got some satisf- I got I get a lot of I still get a lot of satisfaction out of that. I like doing that. I like to see people. Uh, have these huge transformations and I get blessed to be part of those transformations. I really like speaking and so for a while I just wanted to be a speaker and then I realized I need to be doing all those things and all those things go together. I need to be speaking, I need to be coaching. I mean there's a rush, I'm sure you know it, it's like there's a rush you get when you get in front of an audience and you're vibing with that energy and you're getting your message across Um, and then it changed too. So. I created this vision for myself when I first started, you know, all I wanted to do was be able to go out in public and not be noticed for being a fat guy. I wanted to fade in the background. I didn't need to be noticed anymore. So I created this vision of that I had a strong, healthy, lean, attractive, youthful body weighing 175 pounds or less that I maintained easily for the rest of my life. And I defined how I would look, how I would dress, how I would carry myself. And as it became a reality, I changed my vision. So my vision now became, I want to touch the lives of more than 10 million people in my lifetime. That's a very big number. Yes, it is. But it's funny when you put those things out to the universe, things start to happen. So right when I put that out was within a few months is the first time I got on the Howard Stern show, which has an audience of millions and millions and millions of people. And And I was totally unprepared for what happened after that. I just was contacted by so many people after that, not for ridiculous things like you would think of from a radio show, but for, hey, you know, my kid's struggling with cancer, or uh, I'm an Olympic athlete, I want to win a gold medal, or I'm struggling with something in my life, can you help me? And um, so those things became blessings. And so it's interesting how when you change the focus of your life, what you, what you manifest moves in that direction yeah for sure where did hypnosis come into play with all this well you know one of the things i noticed as i started studying how the mind works and more than one modality talked about the hypnotic state being the most powerful state of change like one of the things i've studied is neuro-linguistic programming which is known as nlp 
And a lot of people in the business world know that. They're familiar with NLP and what it is. And I had the opportunity to study with one of the co-creators of NLP, um, which is Dr. Richard Bandler. And I still have had a chance in years. He's still around. But he always talked, and, he, and, and most of his books have talked about the hypnotic state is the most single powerful state to be used in the subconscious mind for making change. It's a tool. And it's not hard to access, but it's what you do with it when you get there. So I thought it was a great way for me to learn that skill and use it and then use all the other things that I used with, with that I learned to use with people and the things I've created while they are in a hypnotic state. Those things have a tendency to stick and stay better when you're working with somebody at a subconscious level. I mean, you know, you see people go to seminars all the time. And what you usually see is you go to a seminar and you hear great things. And about 5% of that audience will take everything they hear and they will use it all and they will do great things with it. The other 95% break up in two groups. Group one goes home, they're really excited, and for two or three weeks they do it and then they stop doing it. And the reason they stop doing it is their value belief system doesn't match what they're trying to do. So it doesn't match the pictures they have of themselves in their head. So they have this idea that their whole life's going to change in two weeks. And what happens is they try for a little while. They don't get the instant results they had the expectation of getting, which, by the way, weren't accurate. They were just their expectations. So they quit. They either think what they're doing doesn't work or that they're not good enough. Same thing why we see in New Year's resolutions every year, right? What happens? I go to the gym the first two weeks of every year. I hate going to the gym because it's so crowded because everybody thinks they're going to transform their life in two weeks, and their expectations unrealistic. They're, they go in there with too much adrenaline. The first day they work out like a madman. The next day they can't move, and then it just wanes, and two and a half weeks later they're gone. And then the, the, and then the second part of that group that fails at a seminar is they get so excited, they go home, they look at everything, they get so overwhelmed, they go, I can't do this. And it all has to do is because they're trying to make change consciously. If you change this first, then the other things start to make sense. Like I work with a lot of sales organizations in creating the mindset of success for salespeople because they have to, a lot of people have very limiting values and beliefs on money from their religious backgrounds and the environment they grew up in. So what happens is they start to have some success and then a little voice kicks in their head saying, wait a minute, don't do this because only really bad people and money is the root of all evil, so stop doing it and there's a conflict. And you've got to change that perception of how they see themselves and how they perceive making money. The same thing for everything. So everything is here. 85 to 90% of what you do, you do at a subconscious level. And change the pictures, you change the outcome. Yeah, I, I'm a student of, of life, Scott. I, I love hearing different perspectives. The, the area that you work in, in terms of the, the modalities that you use, I was never familiar with intimately. But the end result that you're trying to accomplish, that's what we're all trying to do as, as right. leaders out there or coaches or whatever you want to call everybody. Uh, my modality is as a, as a business consultant, I'm using my um, experience to apply to uh, an analysis that I do on a business and I try and take these formulas that I've built and try to apply them to a business in terms of the operations, in terms of the, the financial side and, and try to create a successful successful business out of it. Um, you do this in a different way. And so it's, it's really interesting because I feel that as a leader, we need to be forever learners. First of all, mm -hmm. you need to constantly study and be a student of life and just learn how other people are succeeding. And so 
in in learning more about what you do, I found it really, really interesting. And I'll, I'll actually tell the story now of how you and I met. And so um, Scott's mentioned, mentioned before that I'm a speaker as well. In order to sort of further my my understanding of the the TED brand and the TEDx brand, I actually became an organizer last year, and I organized TEDx Farmingdale, the the first ever TEDx event uh, to come to Farmingdale, which is my hometown. I really put a lot of work and, and thought into this event, and I wanted it to be super special. And so when we started taking applications, uh, we got about two hundred applications, and I get an application from a Scotch Marin. And I, and I saw the name and I was like, oh, I know I know this name. And it took me about three seconds without even Googling it to go, oh my God, Scotch Marin is a hypnotist from the Howard Stern show. <laughs> and, I, and I freaked and I started looking at your work and I was so enamored. So we'll fast forward to your, your idea for what you were pitching for your talk was unbelievable and I wanted it on our show. And so you were chosen as a speaker and now we go through the process. So we're in a really in-depth process for a few months where I tried to be very involved with, with my speakers in terms of looking, giving feedback on their talks. Now, somebody like Scott was an interesting case for me because somebody who's such an established speaker, an established public figure out there, I would never want to, to offend by giving my feedback. This man was like one of our number one supporters in terms of wanting to be part of the process, part of the community, immersing himself in this community of, of a lot of beginners who had never done this before. And here you have a man that's been doing this for years. And so it was so helpful to us. So I saw that part of your personality very, very early on. So I, want, I do want people to know that this man is, is the real deal. He is a, a servant leader. He is out there to help people 100%. This process was was really tough for me because it was so time consuming and it took a lot of energy because you put a lot of passion into into something like this. And then tragedy struck uh, for, for my family in that we found out my dad was a little bit sick. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer and it hit me very hard, but I still had my commitments. I still had my business to run and so I still had my foot on the gas pedal. And a few people reached out to me from the TED community one being Scott, what's going on? I, I, I feel something. I feel something. I, I, I see something's weighing on you. Talk to me. No, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. Scott was persistent. Persistent. I know something's happening. Talk to me. I want to help you. Okay. So I had a conversation with Scott and I told him what was going on. And uh, I said, I'll, I'll be okay. It just, uh, it's, it's a little tumultuous this time right now, but we'll get past it. And he said, no, I, I think I can help you. And so I accepted that help begrudgingly because I'm, I'm a little stubborn like that when I'm going through my stuff. I want to do it alone. And Scott said, I'm going to send you a recording. I want you to listen to it. I want you to be by yourself. I want you to be sitting in a chair, comfortable, ready to, to give some time to this process. And it was about a 21, 22-minute recording. And, uh, and he said, let me know if this helps. Do this once a day for a few days and let me know. And so I was actually really excited because at the time I had really been looking into get, getting into some kind of meditation and I was excited to do it. I had a busy week that week and sure enough, towards the end of that week, my wife was also just uh, very stressed, going through a lot of stuff at work. And so it was a Sunday night. We dropped the kids off. We were by ourselves. Both took nice, nice hot showers, relaxing. And I said, hey, do you want to? 
do you want to go sit on the bed? We'll sit upright on the bed and as if we're in chairs and just kind of both listen to this thing. And she goes, yeah, all right, let's do it. I could, I could totally go for this. And so we listen and we start, and I gave myself to this process. And I will tell anybody that if you're not ready to sort of, sort of, I don't want to say believe in this, but just follow the instructions, uh, it's not going to work for you unless you're ready to give it, give yourself into it. And so I listened, I did the breathing techniques and I was listening to Scott's voice. The next thing I remember is my wife, you know, patting me on the shoulder, George. And I was like, oh my God, did I fall asleep? And she goes, you weren't snoring, but I... I think you did. And I go, first of all, I feel so relaxed right now. I can't even tell you the the feeling I have right now. But I said, I remember, I forget what it was, but I said, the last thing I remember Scott saying was this and this. So, And it turned out to be about halfway through the recording. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And I go, what did he talk about afterwards? Because I want to see if I could just jog my mind. And she goes, uh, and nothing. And she goes, I can't remember <laughs> I go, did you kind of fall into this too? And she goes, yeah, I must have. So the next morning I'm getting ready for work. I'm shaving and I listen to it consciously now uh, just so I can hear the words. And I had heard everything, the entire 22 minutes. Um, But I, I just didn't remember because I went into that hypnotic state. I went into that meditative state, um, which I, I believe are one and the same. Um, And they all are. I know is that I woke up the next morning with a weight lifted off of my shoulders and it wasn't magic. It wasn't guys, this bullshit of the, you know, the, 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 the stopwatch and you are getting very sleepy. It's, it's none of that stuff. It's what I can equate this to is if anybody ever zones out, it was the same feeling when I'm just kind of sitting there in my chair in my office and nobody's around. And it's like just after I had lunch or something and I just kind of zone out, my eyes go crossed that's the same vibe that I had from being in this hypnotic state. And it was just sort of willing to listen and accept the things that I was hearing and, and put them into my subconsciousness and let it play out in my consciousness. Is that right, Scott? Yeah. I think of it as zoning out with purpose and direction. You know, what, it's, a, it's a different concept. So I started working with somebody. You know, we're always taught that when you're learning something new, you have to pay attention and focus. And I'm telling you to do the exact opposite. Like I'll tell people when they listen to a recording or if they're with me live, I don't want you to try and make anything happen. I just want you to listen and follow along. Allow yourself to have whatever experience you're going to have. And everybody's experience can be different, and that's totally fine. And so it's kind of the opposite of what we're taught. You know, we have to pay attention. This is it's a conversation with your subconscious mind. So whether your conscious mind completely zones out and doesn't care, which is what happened with you. Sometimes your conscious mind listens and follows along, and that's fine. Sometimes it tries to disrupt. Totally fine. It's not a conversation with your conscious mind. Your conscious mind is so unimportant in this conversation. So so think of it as zoning out with purpose and direction. Yeah. It's an easy way of looking at it. It, it, so. it really was, and I and I hardcore committed to this for the next few weeks, and I, and I want to thank you, first of all. I know I've thanked you privately, but... Um, you sent me a couple of recordings after that, and I was really touched, first of all, that you even reached out. Um, because in essence, man, we were perfect strangers. You know, we were starting to get to know each other a little bit. But um, the fact that you sensed that weight on me and, and offered uh, your professional advice to help me out, that was incredible. And it really helped to get me through that period because we sort of personally 
had a shift, right? Dealing with my dad's illness and, and it was the, the beginning stages of just what the hell's going on? What are we going to do? Blah, blah, blah. And it helped me regroup and, and go to my parents and say, Hey, okay, guys, let me, let me take over. Let me take over the care here. Uh, let me take over the doctor's appointments. Let me, you know, let me help guide this process and we're going to get through it together. And it, and it gave my dad uh, a, a renewed sense of comfort that I would take care of everything. Um, and it sort of helped me to balance all these things going on, work and, and my kids and my wife and Ted and, and my dad. And, and it just sort of all worked out. It wasn't a magic potion. I want no. everybody to know that. I did this, right? Yes. Scott gave yes, me did. a tool. Scott gave me a tool to help me focus myself a little bit or unfocus, you should say. <laughs> gave me a tool to help focus myself uh, onto what I had the ability to, to manifest in my life. I think, I think that's great, and I'm glad it helped you. And, and that's one of the things I tell my clients is they'll have things happen, and they thank me, and I appreciate the thanks, but I really didn't do it. They did it. Yeah. It was, you know, my belief is that everybody already has everything they need inside of themselves to get where they want to go. It's a question of discovering it, or many times they're already using it in other areas of their life, or they're already using it in how they're limiting themselves. And all they need to do is become aware of it, flip the switch, and then move it over to where they want to use it. And they get there. Yeah. And it's just becoming aware. You know, the thing I tell people the most, the single most important thing, if you can get anything, if you're going to work with me, so the only thing you get is become awake and aware of your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, and habits. Because the moment you become aware of them and they're not on autopilot anymore, you have control of them. And you have the ability to change them and to move in the direction you want to move in. Yeah. So becoming awake and aware of the things you do, because we are creatures of habit and habitual habits and routines. If you think you're not, you are. If you took, a, if you took an inventory of how you did everything every day, you'd find that you, your every day is pretty much the same way in how you do things, from how you put on your pants, which leg you put on first, to how you tie your shoes. Here, I use this example. We do very little consciously. So think about it when you first learned how to drive a car, right? You got in the car, you're 16 years old, you had to think about looking in the rearview mirror, looking at the two side mirrors, where you put your hands, and whether you were stepping on the gas or the brake. Fast forward, you get in a car now, you don't think about any of those things. You get in the car and you drive, and your eyesight and your hands and your feet are perfectly coordinated with each other. They work perfectly because you're not doing it at a conscious level, right? Many of us drive to work without remembering that we ever drove nope. to work, but we didn't kill anybody, hopefully. So. <laughs> and, and, and it's an interesting point that you make, guys. Uh, uh, you, you need to understand that this is a teachable moment for you because Scott is giving you the keys to the kingdom here. He's telling you how he does this, as do I with what I do. And there's a parallel here, right? When I go, if somebody hires my consulting firm to go help fix their business, I will tell you that eight times out of 10, probably nine times out of 10, I take what's there and I help them understand and use what they have better. We're not the kind of firm that comes in and fires everybody and brings in new people. We work with what's there now and say, hey, you know, are you not using your employees the right way? Are you not giving them the right tools? And so we help to provide tools to take what they have currently and, and 
run more efficiently. And so, so Scott's doing the same thing. So when you see these parallels uh, throughout successes in different industries, there's no big secret here, guys. You know, like, yeah, it, it's kind of like just understanding that we don't always operate in the most optimal way. And if we could sort of change our perspectives on how we operate, we could really change shit up for ourselves, you know? And so it, it's an incredible tool you provide. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about public appearances and stuff. Uh, you, you touched on Howard already. You've had some of the most iconic appearances on that show. I mean, with, with Sal Governale, with Ronnie. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and people have to understand that, look, we take, and, and I'll say we now because I am, I think I'm a, I'm a broadcaster now too. You know, that's to, to be well, seen. Well, you are. <laughs> we take our platforms and we try and take information and translate them into what we think our audience would like. And so Howard translating what he does into comedy, you got to take it with a grain of salt. What Scott did on those shows, you know, they're bits, right? And so, but when you can understand, you know, the the power of the the type of, I want to say breakthrough that you had with these people on the show in terms of getting to them and helping them either relive these moments in their past or, or sort of understand their subconscious a little bit better. It's really cool when you, when you take it with a grain of salt and take the comedy and the bits out of it and see how powerful your work actually is. You know, George, it's interesting you say that because when I've gone on there and yes, the bits are for show purposes. And by the way, they are real. I've had plenty of people say, Oh, those were all fake. No, they were real. They were real moments, but I always have a purpose. And one of the, things I want to try to get to people is whatever you're experiencing up here at a deep subconscious level, your body doesn't know that it's not real. It treats it as if it's real. And so you saw people having internal experiences that they were expressing externally and they were real. It's no different. If I have somebody in a really deep hypnotic state and I gave them an ice cube and put it in their hand and told them it was a hot coal, they would get burnt. And they would physically have blisters on their hands. And so this is very real. I mean, we've seen, you don't see it here because we're a little chicken in this country. We've seen in the UK people who've had problems with anesthesia have had open abdominal surgery without any anesthesia in a hypnotic state, in a awake hypnotic state. They're actually wow. having conversations with the doctor while their abdomen's cut open and they're not feeling any pain. You can turn it off. Because this, is everything it controls everything pain comes from your neural receptors right yep yeah that's incredible man that's incredible talk about oprah a little bit i watched uh i watched a clip on your website from i don't know how far after your weight loss this was but you were running a marathon in chicago right right it was a long time ago yeah yeah uh talk about going on to oprah and what kind of uh effect that had on you um well you know it's funny because i was very shy i was in my 20s so I was a very shy kid, and that's the first time I ever realized that I want to have either my own talk show or I want to be a speaker. So I have this, you know, I'm very quiet, I'm shy. Um, I got on there, here, talking about how the universe conspires to make things happen. So that was a time uh, when Oprah, before she had her own studios, and she was in the local ABC studios in Chicago. And I had just lost a lot of weight, and I had people sponsoring me money for a charity, and a, a local uh, personal interest story uh, reporter from ABC, who I think he's even still around now, did a story on me. And 
they were editing the story, and one of the producers from Oprah's show saw it. And they were getting ready to do this big, giant show. It was the highest-rated show she ever had. Oprah had lost a lot of weight on Optifast, I think it was at the time. And they wanted guests on the show, and they were getting calls mostly from the big weight loss company saying, we want, you know, they, they have somebody they want to put on the show, and they didn't want to do that. So they saw, I'll never forget the moment, I, they saw the piece. I was in High Point at a furniture market. It was, you know, this, there was no cell phones. So we didn't have cell phones. I was calling an order in on a pay phone to my office. I called the order, and we had kind of a smart-ass secretary. She goes, oh, and by the way, Oprah show called you. They want you to call them back. I go, ha-ha, very funny. She goes, no, they really called. And I called them, and I got on the show. So I remember walking out, and everybody goes, oh, weren't you afraid, and weren't you nervous? I walked down and go, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing in the world. I'd like, you know, I could do this. So I got the, that's really where I got the bug to start doing some of this yeah. stuff, too. So it yeah. was a cool moment. It was a very cool moment. I love that. Ooh, the Big Talk Academy, our newest sponsor. Guys, you have a story to tell. You want to make an impact, and damn it, you are ready for more. I know all about this journey. You see yourself on that big stage, so what are you waiting for? I know you're ready to take that big stage, and you are probably freaking out about how to do it, but relax. The Launch Dad's about to tell you how to do it. And if I'm the launch dad, then this lady right here that I'm going to talk about has got to be the big talk mama because she has helped to bring to life more talks on big stages that you could possibly imagine. Award-winning director, speaker, coach, and producer, Trisha Brooke, she founded the Big Talk Academy and she founded it for you. This is a 12-week virtual certification program, and she's going to teach you how to identify your big idea, craft your big talk, and learn to pitch like a boss. She and the other members are going to support you along the way, and I know all about this community, guys. It's incredible, and they're going to help you realize your dream of becoming a sought-after speaker. In Trisha's community, you might be on the big stage by yourself but you are never alone. Group calls twice a month. You can ask Trisha anything and get the support that you need to take things to the next level. Guys, the Big Talk Academy, it's waiting for you, and so are your big stages. Let's do it. Your public speaking, of course, you've been everywhere speaking, but specifically, we work together on, on TEDx. You've done two TEDx's, right? Yep. Yeah, so TEDx Farmingdale, healing the world with kindness and love. Again, this these will all be in the show notes, guys, on the on the podcast, uh -huh. so you'll be able to click the links. And then the three best friends you have on the journey of your life. It, it's kind of cool, and I've I've looked at some of your other speaking stuff. I was giving advice to to uh, a young man that I'm mentoring recently, and we talked about um, what comes next after after your big talk, right? What do you do once you finally get up there and essentially, you know, do your talk for the first time and sort of blow your load up there? It's kind of like how do you how do you proceed after that? And so you can see it, guys, when when you look at the types of talks that Scott does. There's a central theme that leaders have. You can call it your mission statement. You can call it your our, our friend Mark Cordon calls it the Joy Revolution. You know, it's this theme of what kind of message you're trying to get out there. And there are so many branches in how you disseminate that message, but in reality, they all kind of follow the same theme. So you're such a talented speaker, man. You're so charismatic, and and people can really relate to to your stories because you're you're so honest. And and thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah. And in terms of of leadership, uh, this is something I wanted to touch on quick. 
I think we can sort of relate this to your revelation, your awakening as well, because I, I had one of those as well, and I've talked about it ad nauseum on the show. You know, when you can kind of be comfortable in your own skin, when you realize that authenticity is really such a better route in terms of the persona that you want to project, just being your authentic self and accepting your authentic self, it's really the first step in in being a better person and living a better life. And then if you choose to become a leader and get out there and 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 talk to others, whether it's on on a public stage like you and I do or or in different ways, authenticity is when they'll listen to you. You know, if you're not authentic, people are not stupid. They know. You know, yeah, I want to congratulate you on just being such an authentic person and really being Thank able you. to spread your message in, in that way. I think the, one of the last things I want to touch on before we get to the last few bits on the show is servant leadership. Talk to me about what it's like for you uh, to essentially dedicate your life to helping others. What does that mean to you? What does that mean? Well, to me, that's everything. I mean, that's the greatest feeling in the world to be part of someone's journey and help them shine and become the person they want to be or they get past something in their life. I mean, uh, that's like the greatest drug in the world. I mean, you know, so I guess there's something a little bit selfish about that, wanting to serve other people because you get a good feeling out of it. Um, If we did more serving and helping other people, our world would be a much better place than it is right now. You know, we live in a world now where we're very focused on ourselves. I mean, social media is, hey, look at me, and is it really helping us? I mean, it's a tool, and how are we using that tool? But what's happening is, you know, we're, we're in a world now that's so connected, especially through social media, but yet we're so isolated from each other because we're just focusing on me, me, me. And if everybody would just take a moment and do something kind, it doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to be some monumental thing. Just, you know, paying somebody a compliment, opening a door for somebody is we do a little bit to serve somebody else. We do a lot to serve ourselves. You know, um, you know, when you put that energy out there that you're here to help somebody, it comes back to you. I don't even think about it. And um, and to serve without anything in return is a beautiful thing. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I feel better by doing it. I mean. Yeah, I, I feel much more connected to the world, and I feel like I'm making a positive difference. And if we just did a little bit, each of us, every day, things would be a lot better. We'd be communicating better with each other. We'd probably solve a lot of the issues that we have without fighting with each other. You know, sitting down in an atmosphere of let's work together and let's get it done. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you look at it in that way, and I think people really need to listen to what you just said. Servant leadership, the, the term servant leadership is often associated with the clergy, and, and people think that dedicating your life to something means that you're all in 100%, you have no time for anything else. And that's, that can't be, that couldn't be the farthest thing from the truth in servant leadership because you have to have balance, which we'll get to next. But servant leadership can be as simple as a random act of kindness on a consistent basis. Ah, consistent, um, yes. Yeah, consistency is the key there because you can't <laughs> you can't have leadership unless it's it's always unless you keep doing it. Now, does it have to be every minute of every day? Of course not. No. Um, it's to the level that you're comfortable with, that your life and your family are comfortable with. These are all things that you have to consider. Um, but a lot of the people that we've interviewed on this show, 
they come from a, from a, a background that had nothing to do with servant leadership, and it's just something that they sort of came to in their lives. And so for me, that was that was really important when I realized um, that I had the resources and the ability to to be a servant leader out there for people. I still have my moments where I do have to focus on me. I have to take time for myself and for my family, and that's part of the balance. But you don't have to go out there and 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 aim to change the world. It's like you talked about with weight loss. You know, if your if your goal is to lose a hundred pounds in three months, and then you're just going to gain it right back if that's your only focus, right? It's the same thing with leadership. You just have to aim to live a con- a life of consistency in in kindness, and it'll sort of gravitate in that direction. I agree. I agree. You know, it's interesting. The concept of servant leadership has been around for a long time. Like you read the book Think and Grow Rich with Napoleon Hill, and he talks about you know, the interview with Andrew Carnegie. But if anybody ever looks at Andrew Carnegie's story, Andrew Carnegie was one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world at that time. We're talking about in the early 1900s. And at 50 years old, he had an awakening, so to speak, like I have or you have or anybody else has. At 50 years old, he was one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world. And he was also one of the most ruthless businessmen that walked on the face of the earth. He destroyed a lot of people's lives. And he realized how much he had wasted his life. And he spent the second half of his life doing just the opposite. His goal was to give back. In fact, his goal was to die broke. His goal was to die giving away everything he had. And what most people don't realize, our library system in the United States that we have right now was created by Andrew Carnegie. And on his deathbed, he was broke. He gave away every single dime that he had to give back, realizing that he had taken so much in his life, it really was more about the feeling he got about making a difference and leaving this world a better place after he passed. Yeah. It's uh, funny you mentioned uh, Think and Grow Rich. We actually, I don't know if you caught it, but we had Greg S. Reed on our show a few episodes ago who wrote Three Feet from Gold and Stickability. And he's actually, he works with the Napoleon Hill Foundation on writing off of the Think and Grow Rich series, which is pretty it, cool. It, it, Yes, the Napoleon Hill Foundation, actually, you know how the Napoleon Hill Foundation was created? There was a billionaire in the 1970s, W. Clement Stone, created a combined insurance company. He lived in Chicago. In fact, you used to see him drive. He lived in a suburb not too far away from where I was. And it was like one of the first limousines I ever saw, and he had like a private plate on it. It said Jay Stone on it. But he, and he had the, the pencil-thin mustache, but he attributed all his success to Napoleon Hill. And Napoleon Hill had disappeared for years. No one knew where he was, and they thought he was dead. So he took some of his people, and he wanted to find out what happened to Napoleon Hill. And they actually found Napoleon Hill. And Napoleon Hill did not own the rights to any of the books that he wrote. So W. Clement Stone found him, brought him back to Chicago, and then purchased the publication rights to every single book that Napoleon Hill wrote, gave it to him as a gift, and they established the Napoleon Hill Foundation to prosper the principles of success from Think and Grow Rich, which is interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, very cool. We talked about balance, and and I wanted to come back to a point that I meant to make before as well. Balance in what you do uh, is so important. I see the balance that you've brought to your life. We've had private conversations as well, and and again, we're both forever learners, and we're looking to grow every day. I want to hear from you what balance means to you in terms of the work that you do. Balance for your clients, I should say. 
I mentioned before that you had helped me out during that TEDx process, which was just invaluable to me. I made a very interesting observation during that that I meant to mention before, and this has everything to do with balance. You gave me that recording. I was not able to listen to it for almost a full week. Why? I could not find 22 minutes out of my day each day to sit down and listen to it. And so that Friday, I had a packed weekend coming up, and I said to myself, this is crazy. I can't find 20 minutes for myself to sit down and listen to this. And so I forced myself to make that time. And okay, it was a couple of days later. And after experiencing that that uh, that 22 minute experience listening to your recording, I really made the revelation that part of my problem during this time period was a balance problem. I wasn't finding time for myself and carving yeah. out that because it wasn't just 22 minutes. I, I sat before, relaxed a little bit and afterwards. So carving out a half hour for myself to be able to focus on my own well-being, my own mental health was so important to me that I made sure that I carved that out going forward. I personally, I'm a, I'm a creative, Scott. I, I love just being in my own thoughts sometimes, whether it's a long car ride, whether it's being in the shower. I write almost every talk that I do on a stage in the shower, by the way. That's <laughs> almost every talk happens in my head during, uh, during my showers. And so carving out that time for me to be, be with my own thoughts, go into that hypnotic state, that meditative state was so important to me. Uh, so I wanted to make that point. But for your clients, how important is it to impress balance on them? Well, let's define balance. Because a lot of people just think balance is being perfect. You can't be perfect. And I work with this with a lot of my clients. They set the expectation of being perfect, which is an automatic formula for failure. Balance is consistency. As I say is, Perfection is, is the seed of failure. Consistency is the flower of success. It's about being consistent. Like people will see me out and I'll be at a restaurant and I'm eating a really decadent meal and they go, oh, how can you do that? Don't you watch what you eat? I go, not all the time. I'm consistent. I don't have to be perfect. Yeah, um, you know, we say, I, I had a client I work with, this lady who wanted to lose weight. And in Chicago, we have this very famous uh, it's more than just a little hot dog place. It's a big chain now. It's called Portillo's. But one of the things Portillo's makes, besides Italian beef and great hot dogs, is they make this really incredible chocolate cake. Okay? They're famous for it. And this lady comes to me who wants to lose weight. She goes, I love Portillo's chocolate cake. And I'm never having it again the rest of my life. I go, that's a dumb proposition. Because you know what's going to happen? You're going to work really hard. You're going to lose some weight. And one day you're going to break down and have it. Have it and then in your mind, you fail because you set up the expectation of being perfect. And you're going to chuck everything you did and destroy everything. So you're going to do just the opposite. You're going to have Portillo's chocolate cake twice a month. Not only are you going to have it, it's a required part. It's part of your diet. You have to have it. You are not allowed to avoid it. You have to have it. So what happens? Now there's no pressure for her to be perfect anymore. She can enjoy something she enjoys. One piece of cake twice a month is not going to make a difference in your life. If you enjoy it, so, so what? You know, it's about being consistent. And I'll work with a client and they make progress, and a lot of times they'll have a bad day and they think that, oh, my God, my life's terrible again. Life is not a straight road. There's curves and there's bumps and there's potholes in that road. And it's how you handle those things. I have bad days. I have days that I don't enjoy having, but I know it's only that day. I know that when I wake up tomorrow, I have a different day. And yesterday doesn't become the next day, 
the next day, and then six months is how it used to be. It, that day is done. What did I learn from that day? I'm glad it's over, but it has nothing to do with what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's my perspective. So balance is about being consistent in what you do, not perfect, and also taking time for yourself. A lot of people feel selfish. We live in a world now where, especially I work with moms for certain things, whether it's weight or other things, and everything's their kids. I understand that. But they take no time for themselves. And what they don't realize is taking a small chunk of time and making it for yourself every day makes you a better version of you. And you can't be a better version of yourself for somebody else unless you're taking care of yourself. You know, our kids don't do what we tell them to do. They do what they see us doing. And if you're working and you have a family and you're taking time working on yourself, your kids see that. So what are you doing? You're establishing that habit for them. They see you making a commitment of time so you can be the best version of yourself for yourself, but also for them and everything else you do. And it's important kind of lose that in ourselves here. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. You mentioned tomorrow. What's next for Scott Schmarin? What's next for Scott? Um, I have a lot of interesting clients I'm working with now. I'm working, I was in Portugal about a year and a half ago with some people I know that are NLP trainers. And I did a, a four day seminar out there. I'm working on doing that again. That could happen in May. Um, I'm speaking at a conference in August. Um, I've got some other things coming up too. Uh, my focus lately has been working a lot one-on-one -on -one with some clients. Um, and they're all from diverse backgrounds. I work with some A-list celebrities. Uh, I seem to be working with a lot of those lately. It's becoming uh, part of my focus. Um, with business people, uh, everyday kids. I've worked with some athletes, everyday people. I mean, yeah, I work with people with you know, all walks and all directions of life, and I really enjoy that, especially when they have those aha moments and you get to be a part of it. It's really kind of cool. Yeah. For sure. We're going to post your contact info uh, on our show notes, but uh, that's okay. Great. Best way to reach you? Okay. Sure. All right, guys. Let's move on to the big three. The big three from the launch cast. Big three, of course, is your top three. I'm going to name a few things here. Off the top of your head, you're going to give me your top three for each item. Ready? Go for it. Yeah. These are The first two are interesting. First one is going to be top three favorite foods before the awakening? Uh, they'd probably be the same as they are now. It would be uh, pizza, good pizza. Like from Chicago, that's Lou Milnati's pizza, not you know, like the thin stuff you guys have out there. <laughs> um, uh, ice cream, and a good, hard, crispy chocolate chip cookie. Okay. By the way, I've been uh, to all of those places. When I was in Chicago last year, we hit every single Portillo's, Luminati's, yeah. all of them, all of them. It was a great, great trip. And I may be back in June, possibly. I'm waiting to hear back on a speaking gig there. Great. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll get pizza together. Sounds good. Yeah. So, so the second question was top three foods after the awakening, but I think you answered that. They're exactly the same. <laughs> I just don't eat them as often or as much of them. Yeah. Scott, give me your top three. I'm going to call it your most painful moments. Uh, top three most painful moments. Um, I remember walking into a class in high school and these three girls were sitting with a math class. As a matter of fact, I was a freshman and these three girls were talking about how desperate their girlfriend was to go on a date. And I walked in the room and they all looked at me and go, well, she's not that desperate. So, um, I remember that. I remember being in sixth grade 
and we used to play baseball, but not organized baseball. And I always either played first base or catcher. I was good at making myself because I didn't have to move. Okay. And I also learned how to hit really well because then I didn't have to run fast around the bases. So either I popped out or I crushed a home run and it was very easy. Okay. Very easy. Okay. And I remember one time I got stuck playing in left field. And the rule was in our park, if somebody hit a home run, you had to go climb the fence, which is like a six-foot-high fence, and you had to go hit the baseball. And I'm sitting there, and I watch a kid. I'm just watching the ball. I go, shit. <laughs> I got I to climb the fence. I climb over the fence. You know, and I'm not – I wasn't built for climbing. I get over the top of the fence. I get to the top of the fence. I go, oh, I can't believe I got up this high, and I'm sitting on top of this fence at six feet high. I come over the top of the fence. I'm not paying attention. And I got impaled by the fence. The fence, top of the fence went right through the palm of my hand, and I was crucified on top of the fence. And all I remember is being stuck on the fence. It was so embarrassing. It hurt, okay? And then a kid came by and got his father, and the father was trying to hoist me up to get me up so someone could pull, and he couldn't do it. So I had two other people had to come. And it was the, one of the most embarrassing uh, moments um, that... Um, the third one was at that party I told you about where I crushed the yeah. rocking chair. That would be, that would right up there. Yeah. Wow. I was going to mention to you, I had almost the exact same moment with the chair. So I'm, I'm normally, I'm six one. I'm, I'm normally two fifteen when I'm playing weight, right? Two fifteen, two twenty. I've been down as low as like one eighty at this height, but uh, after my my first marriage, from my the time I got engaged through like this the f- end of the first year of marriage, beginning of the second year, I got up to two eighty five, two ninety, mm-hmm. biggest I ever was, and it was it was rough. And I remember at work one day when I was in the pharmacy world, still we used to have this little two step step ladder, aluminum step ladder, and that was our stool. So if you if you were having lunch, you went in the back room and sat on the on the step ladder and had your sandwich on the counter there. And I remember people used to bust my chops at work a lot about my weight during that time because I would house a, a huge hero with a you know 20 ounce Coke and, and a big bag of Doritos. And, and so I'm sitting in this chair and our delivery girl is walking past me and the fucking stool, the stepladder just crumbled, crumbled oh, into nothing. And wow. everybody's laughing and I was just furious i remember i was furious in that very moment it was uh i understand so, that so when feeling. i when i read that that story i was like oh man i've been there. <laughs> top three successes in hypnosis uh my appearances on the howard stern show uh those were fun and they also led me to some great opportunities to help people um, I had the opportunity to work with a uh she was eight years old at that time a little girl who had had two bouts of brain cancer. She had two brain tumors. And her, her goal, her parents were to have her, one, have the expectation of being healthy and strong again, but also at eight years old, going through two bouts of brain cancer, she didn't spend a lot of time going to school, so she had very poor social skills. She was probably more socially like a four-year-old. Sure. It's to get her back in the world, so she really didn't suffer how I suffered as a kid. And we had this monumental call. Kids are wonderful to work with because their vivid imaginations are powerful. And it was just the time when the movie Wonder Woman came out. And we had this conversation. She told me her favorite hero was Wonder Woman. And I said to her, I go, you know, you kind of remind me of Wonder Woman. I go, what? She goes, what do you mean? She goes, well, 
Wonder Woman's immortal like you, right? She goes, she goes yeah. And I go, and she's strong and she can overcome every opposition. Like, look at you. And she goes, yeah. And she got it. And it just stuck in her head. And then everything just kind of took off after that. For me, that was a magical moment. I love that. Uh, the other moment I had, and it was unexpected, is I, I worked with the guy who had prostate cancer. And I've, had, I've worked with men with prostate cancer before. You know, they, two reasons. They want to come to me because they want to make sure they don't have cancer again, but they also they are afraid they're not going to be able to perform sexually as a man anymore. And that's a big thing for guys. Sure. And so I worked with this guy, and um, the couple days before surgery, I said, come in. We did a session, and in the session, and I recorded for him, is we created this expectation he could control all his bodily functions and speed up his healing process. So, and then he was supposed to listen to it right before he went into surgery and after surgery. So he goes, has his surgery. So it's, it's overnight in the hospital. He goes on a Friday night. Surgery goes great, does the recording. Next day he listens to recording, uh, or after the surgery listens to recording. Well, he's in the hospital overnight, and the weekend shift comes in, and there was a miscommunication. So at 1 o'clock on Saturday morning, he was given a lethal overdose of heparin, which is a blood thinner. So all of a sudden, his blood pressure starts dropping, and he's hemorrhaging from everywhere. Everywhere he was cut, internally and externally, he is bleeding. It looks like a Monty Python movie, according to him. And so they called the emergency surgeon on call. This is at 1 o'clock in the morning who is now already in another surgery, an emergency surgery. There's no surgeon. So now they're preparing his wife. His blood pressure is dropping, and they're preparing his wife that he might die. So in a moment of clarity, he goes, give me my phone. And he puts on the recording. In 15 minutes, he started raising his blood pressure. And they got to him two hours later. They don't know why he's alive. He's got a lethal dose of heparin. He's got a blood thinner in him. When they cut him open, everywhere he was bleeding had clotted. He had clotted his own blood, and he'll say to you today that he saved his own life. Wow. And so I thought that was a really powerful moment, and it was powerful for two reasons. I'm happy he's alive, but it really demonstrated really how powerful your mind is when you really want to do something. Incredible. Guys, real quick, I want to do the spark moment of the week. Guys, this week's spark moment is personal to me, and it really relates to what Scott and I have been talking about today. Scott has, of course, talked about his weight control issues from uh, from his childhood and, and early 20s and how it led to this really pivotal time in his life that led him to this unbelievable journey. And I myself have, have talked, uh, I don't talk about it too often. I talked about it today, um, something that I still struggle with. Uh, in terms of weight issues, um, not to a huge level, but it's huge to me, right? Because this is my own world that I'm living in, and so um, I want to, I want to really impress on people how powerful that can be, and how much of an effect that can have on our lives. I know for myself, there are times in my life where my entire life revolves around my weight, and I think I'm conscious enough and woke enough to, to understand that that's not necessarily the case as long as the health is good and that, you know, the rest sometimes is about vanity, which, you know, we don't want to admit that is an issue sometimes, but of course with a lot of us it is. And so, um, hearing what Scott has talked about today about looking at your subconscious and working on yourself, finding balance in your life in order to deal with weight issues, I think is huge. Um, there are times in my life where, 
I couldn't really control the weight until I found balance in my life. I know that I'm actually the opposite. When I'm stressed, I lose weight. When I'm super comfortable in life is when I gain weight. And when I'm sort of in the middle and I find that balance, that's kind of when I'm the the healthiest. And so I want to make sure that people understand that there is help out there. When you look at avenues like what Scott provides with hypnosis and his type of help, it's really incredible. I will tell you firsthand, as I have that, uh, the work he does is is insane, and it works. It's real. <laughs> it's all real. And it's not like you see in the movies. It, it deals with your subconscious and really attacking the problem through that. But yeah, leadership, weight, all of this stuff, it doesn't work without balance. And so finding that balance in your life is so important uh, into to becoming a better person in all avenues of your life, in your leadership, in your work, in your family, in your health, uh, your weight. And so we have to remember that balance is the key here. And the answer is not always as apparent as you think it would be. Like Scott mentioned, diet and, and exercise, they are tools. They are not the key to weight loss. They are tools for weight loss. Being right in your mind and being balanced is the key. Because if you're not in the right mindset for weight loss, trust me, I've been dealing with this for the better part of the 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 second half of my life, 20 years of my life with weight issues. And uh, it's not easy. And, and finding that balance is not easy. But, you know, if we work at it and we, we work on our consciousness and our subconsciousness, I think we can get there together. So check out more of what Scott's offering because it's, it's super helpful. Guys, thank you for joining us this week. My guest this week, Scott Schmarin, unbelievable. Scott, thank you so much for being here, man. It, it was such a pleasure having you. George, I really appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, this was this was great fun. Uh, we're gonna do this, which means we're done. We we got through everything. And, and side note, uh, again, I'm gonna mention one more time. It was uh, this is the the biggest connection I think that I'll ever have to the Howard Stern show is <laughs> it's interviewing you. And it was <laughs> it was funny. it was very cool uh, to experience this and to you know become friends with you since uh, you know this whole TED experience. We, we set out with this goal of talks that would help to fix the world with our TED thing. And it's it's lovely to see somebody that's not only doing a 12-minute talk about it, but living it, you know, and helping people uh, across the world make their lives better, fix their worlds themselves. So uh, I thank you for who you are, first of all, in this world and, and for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Absolutely. Guys, next week's episode is going to be killer. We have Frank Shankowitz, the co-founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So thank you for being here with us, guys. Fabrizio, hit that outro music. Let's do this. See you later, guys. Launch sequence terminated. Into the black hole. Thanks for listening to the LaunchCast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.